Hello and welcome to the SparkleTech Time Capsule, a weekly glance back at the weird and wonderful happenings that have made San Francisco, San Francisco. This time around, we're slumming the Barbary Coast. It's the final week of March, 2009. I've been thinking about the fact that, just like our out-of-town guests inevitably insist that we take them to Chinatown or Fisherman's Wharf, in the 1870s, visitors from back in the States just had to go slumming in the infamous Barbary Coast. The piece I'm about to read to you is written by Mr. Albert Evans, a reporter from the good old Alta California. The Barbary Coast was part of his beat. Then this gave him connections with the hard-nosed cops whose duty it was to maintain some kind of order in that colorful part of town. As romanticized as it's become in popular memory, the coast was a hell of a place. Filthy, violent, and extremely dangerous for greenhorns. When some visitors came to town in about 1871, Albert asked one of his policeman buddies to join them on the tour. His account of this Barbary cruise is a remarkable first-hand snapshot of the territory bounded by Montgomery, Stockton, Washington, and Broadway. But what's almost more interesting is the way he reports it. The purple prose, the pursed-lipped moralizing, and, though I'd skipped the Chinatown part of the tour, the absolutely matter-of-fact racism on display. This is the Barbary Coast seen through the eyes of white, bourgeois, and extremely Victorian San Francisco. Prepare to be both educated and annoyed. The story's edited from Albert Evans' memoir, A La California, Sketches of Life in the Golden State. Every city on earth has its special sink of vice, crime, and degradation. It's running ulcer or moral cancer which it would fain hide from the gaze of mankind. San Franciscans will not yield the palm of superiority to anything to be found elsewhere in the world. Speak of the deeper depth the lower hell, the maelstrom of vice and iniquity, from whence those who once fairly enter escape no more forever, that they will point triumphantly to the Barbary Coast, strewn from end to end with the wrecks of humanity, and challenge you to match it anywhere outside of the lake of fire and brimstone. It is Saturday evening, in the middle of the rainy season, when no work is doing upon the ranches, and work in the placer mines is necessarily suspended and the town fairly swarms with honest miners and unemployed farmhands who have come down from the mountains and the cow counties to spend their money and waste their time and health in doing or seeing life in San Francisco. The Barbary Coast is now alive with jayhawkers, short card sharps, rounders, pickpockets, prostitutes and their assistants, then victims. We cannot find a better night on which to pay a visit to the locality. They visit Chinatown first, but I'm going to skip that and focus on the coast. We go on down to Pacific Street, the roughest and least Pacific of the streets on the Barbary Coast. The whole street, for half a dozen blocks, is literally swarming with the scum of creation. Every land under the sun has contributed towards making up the crowd of loafers, thieves, low gamblers, jayhawkers, dirty, filthy, degraded, hopeless bummers, that the unsophisticated greenhorns from the mines, or from the eastern states, who, drawn here by curiosity, or learned on by specious falsehoods told them by pretended friends met on the ocean or river steamers, are looked upon as the legitimate prey of all the rest. From the deadfalls, as the low beer and dance cellars are designated, 
which abound on all the streets in this vicinity, come echoes of drunken laughter, curses, ribaldry, and music from every conceivable instrument. Hand organs, flutes, pianos, bagpipes, banjos, guitars, violins, brass instruments, and accordions mingle their notes and help swell the discord. Dixie is being drummed out of a piano in one cellar. In the next, they're singing John Brown, and in the next, the wearing of the green. Women dressed in flaunting colors stand at the doors of many of these deadfalls, and you frequently notice some of them saluting an acquaintance, perhaps of an hour's standing, and urging him to come back and take just one more drink. Ten to one, the already half-drunken fool complies, then finds himself in the calaboose next morning, with a broken head, utterly empty pockets, and a dim recollection of having been taken somewhere by some woman who he cannot identify, then finding himself unexpectedly in the clutches of men he never saw before, who go through him like a policeman, taking from him watch, chain, and every other valuable, then pitch him headlong down a stairway, after which all is a plank in his memory. All of these dens are open and in full blast, yet we see few persons going in or out who appear like customers, and they don't seem to be selling lager or whiskey enough to pay for gaslight. Look in the papers tomorrow morning, and you'll see items like this. Robbed on the Barbary Coast. John Smith, a miner from El Dorado County, came down on the Sacramento boat last evening and put up at the What Cheer House. On his way to the hotel, he made the acquaintance of a man who claimed to know a friend of his who had worked with him at mining. The two started out in search of this mythical friend and visited numerous deadfalls without finding him. They drank at each place they visited, however, and about one o'clock this morning, Smith reached the calaboose in a half-stupefied condition and charged a girl known as Pigeon-Toed Sal with robbing him of $800, her companion holding him down while she searched his pockets. Officers Smith and Brown arrested Sal and her confederate, the Billy Goat, but it's doubtful if the charge can be sustained, as the money was not recovered, and the friends of the accused will fee a lawyer with the money and hire the witnesses to leave the state, or swear that Smith had agreed to marry the girl and gave her the money to purchase the necessary outfit for the wedding with it. It is, in all probability, the old story of the fool and his money. A few such items will enlighten you on the question of how the proprietors of so many of these well-named deadfalls manage to make a living. Three men come up the street as we stand on the sidewalk, looking and listening, and two of them eye our friend the policeman uneasily as they pass. These two are unmistakably of the Algerine pirate class, and the third evidently a middle-aged greenhorn from the mining country. The officer comprehends the situation at a glance, and stepping forward says emphatically, Look here, Jack. I told you once before to get out of the jayhawking business and not let me catch you on the coast again. And you, cockeye, when did you come back over from the bay? I'll bag you both as sure as I'm a living man if I catch either of you on my beat again. You can go this time, but cuss me if it ain't your last chance. Toddle, blast you, and don't let me see you again. The young fellows slink away without a word, like renegade curs caught in the act of killing sheep. Then the officer addresses himself to their intended victim. Look here, old fellow. Those fellows picked you up at the wharf, or around the what cheer, and pretended they used to know you at home. They are two state prison thieves, and would have robbed you before daylight, sure. Now, you go back to your hotel, put your money in the safe, and go to bed, or I'll lock you up for a drunk, do you hear? The countryman stares a moment with blank astonishment, and then, with many thanks, tells the officer just what the latter had already told him, 
and leaves the Barbary Coast in all haste. Do you want to see what they're doing in these places? says the officer. Come in here with me. We enter what appears to be an ordinary corner grocery with piles of potatoes, soap, candles, and other ordinary goods stacked up in front. Everything looks quiet and respectable, but the German or French proprietor of the place glances anxiously at our escort, who pushes open a green Venetian blind and motions for us to enter. Here, in an inner room, for which the grocery is but a screen, we find some twenty rascally-looking Negroes from Panama, the West Indies, Peru, and Guyana, sitting around dirty tables, playing draw poker and other swindling games with greasy, fairly stinking cards for money which we know they never honestly earned. Hello, that's you, is it? You're a healthy crowd, you are. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine old cons. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven chain gang customers, then six that ought to be hanged and will be sooner or later. Having thus classified the occupants of the place, for our and their benefit, the officer leads us out once more onto the street. We next enter a low room on the ground floor of a rickety old frame building, which has stood here since 1849. And passing the screen, which shuts off the view from the street, find a bar stocked with every species of liquid poison, at five cents a glass. The rough-looking Irishman is behind the bar, Two miserable, bloated, loathsome-looking, drunken white females are quarreling with each other in front. On the settee ranged along the wall sits a third wreck of female humanity, swearing like a pirate and cursing the perlice at every breath, while a man with a face like a diseased beef's liver, who once represented a western state in Congress, is patting her on the back caressingly and endeavoring vainly to quiet her, lest the police outside should hear and make a raid on the establishment. In one corner, a party of Kanaka sailors from a Honolulu whaling vessel are holding a drunken powwow. But, as we cannot understand a word of their language, we pass them with a glance. At the sight of the policeman, the woman on the sofa breaks out like a maniac in fresh curses and vituperation. Then, stepping to the door, he gives a long, sharp whistle. Two answering whistles are heard, and in a few seconds, two more policemen arrive and start with the furious woman between them for the calaboose. Guided by the music of violins, guitars, and a piano, and the tramping of many feet, we descend a narrow stairway and find ourselves in one of the most notorious dance cellars of San Francisco. There's a low bar at one side of the room, and at the farther end a raised platform for the musicians. About forty young women and girls, ranging down to ten or twelve years of age, dressed in gaudy, flaunting costumes, and with eyes lighted up with the baleful glare of dissipation, are on the floor dancing with as many men of all ages. Rowdies, loafers, pimps, thieves, and their greenhorn victims, while perhaps fifty men of the same stamp stand looking on and applauding the performers. The room is blue with tobacco smoke and reeking with the fumes of the vilest of whiskey. Half a dozen men, or overgrown boys, are sitting or lying on the floor in various stages of inebriety, but they are unnoticed by the other occupants of the place. Every time a man takes a partner for the dance, he pays 50 cents, half of which goes to the establishment and half to the girl. And at the close of each dance, he generally takes her to the bar and treats her. We notice with thankfulness that the females appear to be almost all of foreign birth, the exceptions being Spanish-Americans with occasionally an Indian girl who's been raised as a servant in some family in San Francisco, but Indian-like prefers a life of idleness, vice, and degradation to one of comfort and honest labor. 
This place has been the scene of many a savage affray and brutal murder. Then often have we seen the sawdust on its floor red with the blood of some victim of the knife or bullet. It's long past midnight, but the drunken orgies go on unchecked, and will do so for hours yet, if no bloody row occurred to end them prematurely. Bang! 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 What was that? We hear the sharp whistle of a policeman and several answering whistles, and run out to the street to see what's going on. An officer has met three well-known thieves skulking through an alley with something in bags on their back. On general principles, he orders them to halt, and is answered with a staggering blow with a slung shot by one of them. To draw his revolver and let fly at each in succession is the work of an instant. One of the desperados is shot through the heart and falls dead in his tracks. One is lying on the ground with his right thigh bone shivered by the bullet, so that it will require amputation. And the third, barely hit in the side, has thrown up his hands and stands waiting for the irons to be put on him. The police clear the field of action in a few minutes, and on searching the bags, find a quantity of valuable goods just taken from a grocery store on Pacific Street, which the defeated party had broken open and plundered. And here our slumming author heads back into Chinatown, denounces the celestial vices of prostitution and opium, and encounters the aftermath of an extremely bloody murder. But we're going to leave the infamous neighborhood to its own devices now. That was the Barbary Coast of 1871. That's the report for the last week of March 2009. Tune in next Monday for another time capsule dredged up from the kaleidoscopic depths of San Francisco history. There are plenty of eyewitness accounts of what life on the Barbary Coast was like, and it's a subject I definitely plan to revisit. If you're curious about what we missed in Arthur Evans' account of Chinatown, leave a comment at sparkletech.com, and perhaps we'll take a look at that in a future time capsule. In the meantime, Thanks for listening. Till next time.